break free from the devil's headlock, you velvet gurriers. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, What's the Crack? Um, I had the first hint of a winter cold there yesterday. Little bit of the sniffles. I seem to be about 95% better today, but I definitely had the first sign of a, a winter head cold yesterday. And you know what? So, traditionally, what I've done, uh, if I get, we'll say, the hint of a cold or the hint of a sore throat, traditionally what I've found is that if I fight against it and go for a big long run, that this sometimes dispels the cold and it's like the adrenaline tells the cold to fuck off. And I almost did it yesterday. And before I did it, before I went for a run, I tweeted, I said, I've got the hint of a cold. I'm going to go for a run and it's going to sort it out. But luckily, people on Twitter reminded me that last year I did the same fucking thing and went for a run when I had the threat of a cold. And I ended up getting a very a disastrous ear infection. I don't know if you remember that period last year of about three fucking podcasts where I had an intense fucking ear infection. And I was supposed to be filming with the BBC. And I couldn't film because my doctor wasn't allowing me on a plane. Because my earlobe would... Ex- or my eardrum would explode. So thank you to whoever reminded me on Twitter. That no blind boy. If you get the hint of a cold. You should not go for a fucking run. So instead what I did is... I rested and drank a lot of tea. And went to bed. And woke up and my sniffles were gone. So I now only have residual sniffles. And I'm feeling A-OK. Um, so this week's podcast is going to be... It's kind of... Art slash music. It's it's a hot take. It's a hot take that I have. And <clears throat> it's a hot take that I'm... Cautious and fearful around. Because I don't want to... It's, it's, I want to touch on this issue. Because I feel it's it's much, much broader and something I want to explore further in other podcasts. So I'm going to be touching on specific things and trying not to go too deep. Because otherwise I'll end up ruining a series of podcasts that I could do around these things. So before before we continue... Hold on, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a sniff of my Albus Isle inhaler. Which you can form a strange addiction around. It's like... Uh, I don't know, like Tiger Bam or like Vicks. Mental shit that you shove up your fucking nose and it opens your nostrils. And it can be it can become quite habit forming if you're not careful. I don't know why. I th- I think it's cuz it doesn't really clear the nostrils, but when I take a, a sniff of it. Yeah, I think it does that thing. It does it it does something to the inside of my nose. That the same thing that chili peppers do to my tongue. So I think I started to fetishize the pain. So I'm going to put down the Albus Isle now. So before we continue with this week's hot take. um, Just a couple of plugs. Look. Uh, live shows coming up. What, did I, what have I got? The two big ones that I, I'm contractually obligated to continually tell you about. The two Vicar Street gigs in November. For which there are possibly ten tickets left for. Thank you very much for everyone that. Uh, purchasing those tickets but yeah the, the the 19th and the 24th of november i'm doing a live podcast in vicar street looking forward to those 
alright and then my book of short stories Boulevard Wren is finally out in shops on November 1st which is this Saturday so please pop along to a shop and uh, buy my, my book of short stories Boulevard Wren I've already read you out two stories from it Um. You know, it it's I do talk a lot about um I've you know been very cautious myself around you know I I wanna create if I create a piece of work and this not just me, this goes for anyone who wants to do anything creative. You wanna create something and and really try and have your own in, internal evaluation over it. If if you're if you're to create art, you wanna make sure that you and you alone is happy with it. And if other people like it, that's just a benefit. But to be very cautious of external praise, negative or positive. So it's something I have to be mindful of. It's like I have to walk the line of listening to what people are saying and at the same time not taking it on board. And it's very, very tough. But what I will say is about eight or nine people have read the book Boulevard Wren. Um, and there'd be people who, people whose opinions I respect, people who fucking know their shit, and also, if they are giving me critique, it's for the benefit of the work, do you know what I'm saying? It's not like a review, and everyone has read it, but what, what I can happily say is, the aims and goals that I had with this book, they're definitely being reflected to me in the feedback that I'm getting. As in what what I wanted to... Imp- like, I do enjoy the first book. I love it. But at the same time, I'm a bit more experienced now and I took more time to write Boulevard Rent than I did the first book. So it, it's just... Um, it's nice to hear back from people who I respect that the, the things that... The aims that I had regarding the book that they're being reflected back to me so that's good so I'm, I'm I can't wait to fucking put the thing out mainly as well it's 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 nice to have a piece of work fucking out there because then you can truly walk away from it I'm in this strange like I, I don't want to do any creative works until 2020 until January I'm, I'm chilling out now until fucking January I'm just doing gigs and this podcast but when 2020 comes I want to look at some new projects but you kind of can't when your work isn't out. My BBC series as well, actually, that's out. They won't give me an exact date, all right? But I'm I'm 99% sure that my my BBC series will be out mid to late November, okay? Um, I don't know. It was supposed to be out in August, like. But just t- that's the nature of TV. It gets pushed back and pushed back. So I'm hoping mid-November. To be honest, I, I'm, I'd rather it come out fucking mid-November than have it come out last August because August is a shit time to put anything out. And anyway, that's called Blind Boy Undestroys. And it's a four-part series where I work with a team of investigative journalists. And it's 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 kind of... It's me with my hot... My hot my hot takes and my thesis over on an overall subject but with the rigour of actual journalists putting a hell of amount of fucking real work in you know so I still get to have my hot takes but I, it, I tell you what it is it's 
subject matter that I'd be cautious about tackling on this podcast because with this podcast, it's just me. Do you know, it's just me researching and I'm not really a fucking expert. So all I can really do half the time is to have my opinions. But because of that, I'm also quite cautious of what areas I step into if I'm uninformed because you don't want to be you don't want to be saying shit that fucking hurts people that might be affected so the topics that we're covering on this BBC series there's an episode on on modern slavery which is quite fucking bleak um there's an episode on work you know on, on you know what has work become what is the definition of work in 2019 there's an episode on anxiety and I don't just mean not just panic attacks but the overall existential anxiety and the new way of living that we have today and there's an episode on chaos just the general hum of uncertainty that exists today I mean I'm in chaos I suppose what the chaos episode is is it's trying to understand what the fuck is going on right now. It's trying to pin down what is today's zeitgeist. I, I like I, I think of things as, as an artist. So, you know, I look at the 20th century in terms of there was modernism. You know, from the late fucking 1890s up until about 1950. And then all of a sudden postmodernism came in. And since the birth of the internet... You know, that, but, well, by which I mean the widespread use of it, we'll say late 90s, a new ism has come in. Some people call it metamodernism, but we don't really know what it is. So I suppose the chaos episode is trying to understand what is what is right now. So th- these are the four, there are four episodes that are going to be on BBC, and I'm really looking forward to those coming out because it, the pilot, I tell you this, the pilot that I made for it, Back on the Albuside, lads. The pilot that I made for it on housing, that got uh, long-listed for a BAFTA award, which I was not expecting at all. So, I'll be very happy when these things are out. If you're living in Britain, you'll be able to access them quite easily on the BBC player. And if you're not living in Britain, if you live in Ireland then you're going to have to find more creative ways to access BBC Player content, aren't you? Um, You could illegally download it. I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying it's something that I've, I've heard people do that. And also, VPNs, decent VPNs, you know, will let you look at the BBC Player. So, that's the crack. So, this week's podcast... It's it's musical. It's musical and it's also about art theory as such. And if you're familiar with... Like, I love doing the music podcasts. I love history of music in particular. I obsess about music. I'm obsessed with how music gets created. I'm particularly interested, as you know. One thing that really excites and fascinates me is... How new forms of music emerge, particularly from uh, the environment that they emerge from, I really find that exciting. You know, if you 
you know, last year we had the History of Disco, which was a three-part podcast where we traced the roots of disco from the gay rights movement of the 60s, but then also, crucially important, the fact that, you know, you can trace disco to, to cities like Detroit, these industrial cities, that you, that from, from an, an industrial city of repetitive mechanisation, you end up with like a repetitive mechanised music such as house which you know disco became house so with this one I want to speak about another form of music that's kind of arrives from industry but it's not electronic music even though it's not electronic in the sense that we think of it we think of electronic music as drum machines synthesizers but it's certainly and electronically assisted or electric music. I want to talk about the birth of heavy metal. That's what I want to talk about this week. Now, heavy metal. I first off, I fucking adore heavy metal. I've been a long time heavy metal fan. I like pretty much all types of heavy metal. Some of it, I actually know. I don't like the more kind of corny heavy metal. There's like. Gamer metal, I suppose you'd call it. I don't know. There's a band called Dragon Force. It's where metal gets a little bit nerdy and it focuses too much on the virtuosity of solos and the lyrical themes become about slaying dragons. I just can't get down with that. Um, Gothic metal is a band called Cradle of Filth and they veer into that territory, but they do it with a type with a, a, a tongue-in-cheek humor that makes it okay. But in general. I fucking love metal music. I love all music, to be honest. It's quite difficult for me to find... Like, if I come across any music and I don't get it, I work really hard on trying to get it. And it's rare. White boy ska, I just can't fucking do it. American ska music, I just... I can't. I've tried real hard, I'm sorry. Also, a lot of contemporary kind of indie music now that's not fair uh, generally whatever whatever kind of band are being played on BBC radio and it's just a bunch of normal four lads in college and they're making guitar music in general I, I, I struggle to warm to a lot of the big names in that respect but there's gonna there's obviously notable exceptions but in general, that that's one that I struggle with, that I try and... That I don't warm to. So I, I like kind of all music, but I am I'm very passionate about metal. Um, so, to discuss the roots of metal... Now, I'm not going to go into the entire roots of metal, okay? Because in order to do that... I'd, I'd really, you know, you're, I'd be taking it back about 100 years. I'm not going to do that because I want to cover it in another podcast. So instead... I'm going to specifically focus on the period that's generally agreed to be when blues music or, or rock rock blues music turned into what is called metal. And the beauty of it is it can be traced to one specific moment, one specific band, one specific album. It really can. And whenever I see that, whenever, because I, I speak a lot about... Um, you know, I compare music to 
genetics, specifically memetics, where we get the term meme, but not memes as in internet memes, a different type of memes. Uh, 1979, the biologist Richard Dawkins, who's a bit of a prick, unfortunately, he's one of these fundamentalist atheist fellas who's, I don't know, I just never warmed to him. I just, I find him to be a fundamentalist. I think he himself is quite religious, even though he's complete anti-religion. So there's elements of Dawkins that I don't like. But however, Dawkins has a book from 79, I believe, called The Selfish Gene, where he looks at ideas and culture the same way that we would look at genes propagating within a system, within a structure. And the way genes work is you know, animals, plants, whatever, fucking reproduce, genes are shared, an offspring is created, and every so often, there's a mutation in the gene. And this freak mutation, every so often, is highly beneficial, and something very new is created. And I'm always searching for the mimetic, the, when you, when you talk about ideas, but use the structure of genetics, we refer to it as a meme, but I don't mean internet meme and Dawkins meme are quite separate so I'm talking about old school memes uh, selfish gene memes so I'm always looking for the mimetic mutation in music when when did something really fucking specific with a very strong flavour happen in music that completely that created a new branch on the family tree and I love when you can find actual moments in musical history where it's like Boom, there you go. That changed some shit. And when I find those moments, I really obsess about the cultural conditions which led to that thing happening. Because it's that's always the case. You, 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 that's why understanding culture and understanding the, the zeitgeist is so important. Art always reflects the sociological, political, economical environment of where it comes from. Always. Even if the artist themselves isn't consciously aware of it, it's... Look, <clears throat> politics, the society you're in, the culture you're, you're from at that time, your economic situation, whatever the fuck, these things influence how you feel. And if you're an artist, often... To create art means to try and understand these things around you, but you're just expressing it with uh, a means of expression that's other than just words. Do you know? So I'm always looking for, if I find a moment where it's like, yeah, shit changed right there, then I try and find out what was going on culturally for that to happen. So I want to first take this back to Italy in 1909 um, and I want to speak about an artistic movement called Futurism okay so Futurism is a bit of a it's a weird one to talk about and I'll get I'll get to that soon but it's 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 one of the most important artistic movements of the of the 20th century right without a fucking shadow of a doubt but it's also quite a problematic one Um. Futurism, it was born 1909 in Italy. There was a poet called Marinetti, right? And 
Marinetti, he obviously had a few quid, but he had a car, right? In 1909, he had a car. Now, cars had only, like, motor cars had only been available, like, maybe five years in 1909, ten years. So, he was one of the privileged few who had a car, and it was a Fiat. Uh, So, one day, Marinetti was driving along in his Fiat flying down the road and coming towards him all of a sudden were two lads on bicycles and Marinetti had to swerve the car and nearly hit the two lads his car I believe turned over and the two lads flew into a ditch and they just started roaring and screaming at him shaking their fists and Marinetti kind of left the encounter and but it had a deep kind of effect on his way of thinking. And it made him realise that as a car owner, as someone now who has this vehicle with a machine in it that can drive, that isn't propelled by a horse or, or human energy, this fucking vehicle that runs on fuel, Marinetti realised that almost like he should have violently rolled over the two cyclists. He started to say that that encounter where those cyclists were nearly knocked over, that for him was proof that cyclists and horses just need to get off the road altogether. That these new fast machines, these cars, only they should be on the road. And anything to do with machinery or industry is clearly far better than anything in the past. So machines must reign supreme, kind of even if it means the death of people who stand in the way. And that encounter led Marinetti to write the Futurist Manifesto in 1909. Now, the thing with futurism is it's, it's pure modernism in that... Like it's it's the manifesto was an artistic an artistic movement. It was like here it's it was like him and a group of other he was a poet and some other artists. There was painters. Uh, I I think it was just painters and poets at the start. They got together and wrote this manifesto, which manifestos were a, a common enough thing within art movements from about the eighteen hundreds onwards, where it's like a group of artists get together and they go. Here's what's wrong with what's happening now in art. Here's the new thing that we believe needs to go be the way forward and we're going to subscribe to this. So that was a manifesto, but the Futurist Manifesto and what makes it so purely modernistic is that it was an artistic manifesto, but also it fully believed in changing the world. And that's a real tenet of modernism. You know, modernist art really believed of art's ability to change the world you know Uh, postmodernism kind of gave up on that in the 1960s but to kind of encapsulate what futurism was as as a movement in 1909 it's it was like it's 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 like it it, it was bad right It, it was toxic there wouldn't be a there wasn't a lot of room of of feelings, nature, compassion within futurism. It was the utter 
fetishization of industry and technology and the, it, it's futurism is like it's like the worst person you can think of right the most violent arrogant person you know and it's it's their brain for the t- 10 seconds after they do a line of cocaine that's what futurism was that the, the manifesto it was this really arrogant masturbatory belief that technology and machinery that 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 man because man has created technology and machinery that therefore man is capable everything man does is utter perfection because it's you, you have to view it as well in the context of it's like imagine fucking ima- like you're talking 1909 right so you're talking about people who all of a sudden bear witness to things like cars right there's a thing with technology certain shit happened at, at the late industrial revolution whereby when the average human looks at a piece of technology they can no longer understand what's going on and it starts to behave a bit more like magic like when someone invented a fucking a new horse and cart right even if it's revolutionary or if someone invented a ship with brilliant sails and it made the ship go really fast the average human could still step back and look at this horse and cart and look at this ship and go that's fucking amazing but I, I, I kind of know how it works isn't that clever but then with the advent of steam power and in particular then motor cars the average human can't really grasp what the fuck is going on you know what I mean you can kind of explain to someone in 1909 the theory of the combustion engine it's like there's this shit we get out of the ground that used to be dinosaurs and it makes cars go fast and there's no horses or no one pulling it so most people are just like I, I don't get this it's like a type of magic Um, you kind of see it now with like we we deal with it every day now with our apps and our phones you know it's this fucking podcast like Jesus I'm in my room talking into a fucking sock and a million people are going to hear it in the morning my brain can't understand how that works it's it's effectively it's a type of magic so the futurists were they viewed it's like technology slapped them into the face but but it invigorated them with this arrogant certainty that the way forward had to be through technology and the reason I'm speaking about it in negative terms is, yes, the Futurist Manifesto is without question one of the most important artistic documents of the 20th century, but the Futurists also played a huge part in 20th century fascism. And that's where it gets dodgy. Alongside the Futurist Manifesto of art must embrace technology, art must reflect you know we must redefine beauty beauty is no longer nature beauty is a speeding car with fucking exhaust fumes chugging out of it that's what they viewed beauty as but they also viewed war mechanized war as as an absolute thing of beauty they viewed because you're talking 1909 so that's a few years before world war one 
So things like, uh, you know, early types of tanks, um, cannons, machine guns, these things are being developed. So the futurists in 1909 start to really fetishise the idea of brutal fucking mechanised war. I mean, Marinetti himself, he said that, like, man must become the metalization of man. Man must become metal. Man must merge with machines. And the Futurist Manifesto, it viewed war as a hygienic type of cleansing. That the greatest cleansing product on earth is mechanized war. So there's all this really problematic shit within the Futurist Manifesto. However, in terms of what it did for art, it was so forward thinking. It, like, it wanted to destroy everything that happened before it. They wanted to des- destroy museums and basically just had this mad horn for machines, industry. That's the way forward. It was one of the most radical artistic movements. And from the utter radicalism of it, quite a lot of forward thinking and important stuff happened. Um, But again, you've got that fucking shadow of Italian fascism. Like, the futurists were friends with Mussolini before Mussolini became a dictator. And that hangs over futurism as this this awful shadow. However, they made these paintings, fucking theatre and play pieces that are unlike anything anyone had ever seen. Like, they tore up the fucking rule book and really pushed art forward. Um... From futurism, you get, you know, much more interesting and less fascistic fucking art movements, in particular Dada. You know, I, I don't... I've, I've, I view futurism as something that happened in 1909 that was quite important, but I wouldn't put it up there with Dada. Like, Dada is much, much more interesting to me. Dada... Dada's like the birth of postmodernism. It's, it's proto-postmodernism, and Dada... Like, whereas the futurists in 1909 were going, war is is the great cleanser of the world, uh, mechanised fucking war with cannons and machine guns is going to be amazing in 1909. The futurists, or sorry, the Dada Manifesto, which came out in 1916, right? That was much different, because by 1916, the world had seen the first few fucking years of World War One, So... The futurists were being these hipsters in 1909 going, yeah, war's going to be class with all these guns. Whereas the Dada lads were going, no, we've seen it now for a couple of years. This is fucking insanity. The idea that a machine gun, one gun can kill a hundred people. So Dada was like, instead of viewing uh, machines and technology and industry as, as the way forward... Dada viewed it as the ultimate expression of deep human irrationality. So as a result, their art became absurd and comedic and humorous. And from that we get surrealism, you know. But but with futurism it's important because I do need to start with futurism to get what I'm trying to go to with explaining the birth of heavy metal music. Um... It's important to, like, the word futurism and futurists is still used today. It, it's a different context today. If someone's a futurist today, that means they're 
they're like a scientist or a science fiction author who are involved in trying to predict the future. That's different to Italian futurism. Italian futurism, it's a specific movement of the early 20th century um, that embraced invention, modernity, speed, disruption, energy and combat. But unfortunately also really, really embraced fascism. Um, it's important to separate the two. And, and ultimately, what, what makes futurism so fucking dodgy and... It's, it's like anyone who's into 20th century art history. Futurism is the one that pricks up and it's, 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 the, it's the Michael Jackson of art movements. It's like, what are you going to fucking do? It's and, and the it's it's a, a a group of fucking terrible people with terrible ideas. Some of what they contributed was hugely fucking important and can't be ignored. And it's a real problem for anyone who's into twentieth century art history, because the most toxic ideas of Italian futurism they played out to devastating effect when you look at the single-minded ideology of the Nazis and what they put into practice like the Nazi war technique of Blitzkrieg which was you know lightning war and deliberately called lightning war you know again fetishizing speed and industry and machines which no doubt has its roots back in Italian fascism which would have been 20-30 years previous to it but Blitzkrieg which was basically carpet bombing area uh, with the speed and sudden intensity of bombs and factory created weaponry and then roll your tanks in this uh, single minded thing that, that the Nazis used to conquer huge fucking areas you can see the roots of that thinking and ideology in Italian futurism the ideology of, of the holocaust this idea of war as something that quote-unquote cleanses some really really fucking bad destructive ideas are born in Italian futurism and the single-minded nationalism is really hardcore rooted in Italian futurism too you know but the single-minded idea of like we are the ones with the technology we are the ones with the power we are the ones with the factory Therefore, everything we do is right, and nature means fuck all because we've conquered nature. So we're gonna have a, we're gonna set a plan, and we're gonna use technology to do it, and fuck anyone who gets in the way. That's futurism. So it's a tough one to talk about, but what I wanna the the one bit I wanna speak about specifically this week is in the nineteen twenties, futurism started to become interested in music specifically and the most important manifesto in futurism I think is is a manifesto that was written in was it 1919 I believe 1913 Uh, a chap an Italian chap who was an Italian futurist called Luigi Rosolo wrote a manifesto called The Art of Noise and it's one of the most prophetic and important documents of the fucking 20th century regarding music. Um, 
and basically like there's there's a lot of podcasts that I can do where I can trace different fucking music directly back to what this manifesto simply got right and not only what it got right and what it predicted but what I find so interesting is so the futurists they had this this arrogance where they would you know come out with these manifestos and said this is this is how things need to be and this is why things need to be but the art of noise manifesto from 1913 really got a lot of shit incredibly right about 20th century music which I find phenomenal um any any conversation about the birth of electronic or electric music kind of has to start with this 1913 manifesto it, it, it really does whether the musicians were even fucking aware of it um Rosolo basically he'd attended so by 1913 like the futurists embraced all different types of art there was poetry there was even futurist cookbooks there was pottery but also uh, music and there had been a futurist performance uh, orchestral performance in Rome and by a lad called Pratella and basically what it was is that this orchestral piece it didn't use any conventional instruments so it didn't use like violins or cellos or fucking trumpets or whatever the fuck right it was like this orchestra that was made from pots and pans and machines it was it wasn't beautiful sweet music it was grating loud mechanical noise and this inspired Rosolo to write the manifesto the art of noises okay and in this manifesto mainly what Rosolo is kind of fetishizing is noise the concept of not like just music but noise noise being this new thing that only humans can make so Rosolo's manifesto that was kind of it was written frantically and he'd previously painting was his shtick he hadn't even been that interested in music but this performance this futurist music performance he saw was it enamored him so much that he wrote this manifesto so his theory kind of went that you know, music, that basically humans have only ever essentially lived in a world of silence, right? That if you look right back to the history of music, which was, you know, thousands of years old, music reflected essentially what you'd hear in nature. Birdsong, waterfalls, and noise didn't exist in nature only in freak occurrences such as an earthquake or a thunderstorm noise only existed as a very rare traumatic event but humans invented the concept of noise according to Rosolo in his manifesto basically with the he credited it with the invention of the steam engine in the 1800s and that as soon as humans created the steam engine then noise became a thing so you have to realize you have to look at this in the context of this is 1913 humans have been living in industrial cities for 80 years only and Rosolo is basically saying 
the concept of loud, abrasive cacophony. It's like he was the first one. Like the other futurists were looking at, you know, aren't cars brilliant? Go fast. You know, kill people with weapons, with mechanised weapons. Rosolo was looking at the impact that machines have on how we hear, on how humans experience sound and decibels and loudness. And he was fucking spot on. The level of loudness that someone living in Rome in 1913 is dealing with is fucking far, far more chaotic and stressful than someone who'd been living in Rome 300 years previously. That this was the first generation, essentially, that is dealing with loud noise non-stop. And not only one noise, but several noises at once. You and I take it for granted, like... You stick your fucking head out the window and you hear that hum of a city. You hear the fucking strange, low, vibrating rumble of a thousand fucking cars moving at once. Like, that's fucking insanity. And if you're living at the heart of a fucking city, in an industrial city with steam and moving parts and clanking sounds and loud engines, it's this continual cacophony. So Rosolo reckoned that... Music has to develop, that human music must develop to accommodate and reflect noise and that music has to move from the sweet melodies that reflect birdsong and waterfalls into a place of disturbing loud fucking noises. And like I said... What, like the, a lot of what the futurists were saying at the time was insane because they were asking for a complete redefinition of beauty. As Marinetti said, beauty is a speeding car. And now fucking Rosolo is saying, beauty is the clank of a fucking hammer, the rumble of a steam engine. It's the, it, the Beauty is the confusing, horrible, abrasive attack of a giant metal foundry. That this is what beauty is. And music must reflect it. In 1913 he was saying this. One particular passage from the manifesto that I find so fucking just prophetic is... He says, Each sound carries with it a nucleus of foreknown and foregone sensations predisposing the, uh, the auditor to boredom. In spite of all the efforts of innovating composers, all of us have liked and enjoyed the harmonies of the great masters for years. Beethoven and Wagner have deliciously shaken our hearts but now we're fed up with them. This is why we get infinitely more pleasure imagining combinations of the sounds of trolleys, autos and other vehicles and loud crowds than listening once more for instance to the heroic or pastoral symphonies. Like that's fucking unbelievable. So what he's saying there is like you know, it's 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 like uh, you know, it's like trying to go back and play playing a fucking video game from your childhood. You can't like Super Mario was incredible when I was fucking eight, but you can't go back and play Super Mario. You can't because you've been exposed to so much more that you just can't go back and do it. And what Rosolo is saying there in the manifesto is symphonic beauty. The 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 previous orchestral works of the great masters that reflected sweet beauty 
they just they can't work anymore. They can't compete with a human whose ears are accustomed to loud cacophony all the time. The person in 1913 who's living in a city is going to get bored of the fucking these symphonies because their their aural environment doesn't reflect it anymore. And he was so fucking on the ball. Now the thing is, it wasn't intended to be on the ball. I don't like Rosolo in the manifesto wasn't saying, "I think music is going to be this way." It was a manifesto, and it was a futurist manifesto. So he was saying, "Music has to become this way and get the fuck out of the way if you want." So he dedicated many, many years then to trying to create an orchestra of just these weird fucking instruments that sound horrible. They, you know, they they sound more like kind of like air raid sirens. If you look it up, if you look up Luigi Rosolo's instruments. You'll find some examples of them. Just weird loud sounds that they're they're not very melodic at all. But you can like this is what he really, really got a lot of things fucking right. And that particular passage where he said humans who experience loud sound all the time, industrial sound, they get fucking bored. And they're going to need music that reflects this cacophony and we saw it with like I'm I'm sure I, I even possibly mentioned this Futurist Manifesto when I was talking about techno and house coming out of Detroit and Chicago you know even Motown music Motown coming out of Detroit Motown is inseparable like Motown fucking singers the Motown writers they, they were soul and gospel singers who lived in Detroit because there was a car industry there and they spent their Sundays singing in church but Monday to Friday they were working in a fucking car factory with these mechanised machines non-stop clank, clank, clank and from that you know you listen to Diana Ross and the Supremes the whole Motown sound is a very strong rhythmic clank with tambourines and shit so Motown reflected the automobile industry of Detroit fucking techno music comes out of Detroit house music comes out of Chicago these industrial cities where the people who are making the music the working class black people are also working in fucking factories every day so the music has to reflect it that's just what happens so this is where I'm going to this is the hot take I'm going to with metal so I'm going to move on now from the futurists uh, about fucking 50 years into the future but before we do that we're going to have our little ocarina pause no fuck it we'll have our futurist pause where I clank my vape against uh, a nail clippers right and we'll use my my gas lighter as well so here here's the uh, a pause that's dedicated to the the elements of futurism that were concerned only with art, but not the fascistic ideological elements that were concerned with nationalism. And a lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. War. Fuck that part, but I, I'll take the art part, please. So here, here's the futurist uh, noise cacophony pause. And that is quite futuristic. Here I am. I mean, my, my gas lighter is essentially a miniature blowtorch. And then the vape. Fucking hell. Talk about futuristic. Here I am. Not even fags anymore. Vaporizing nicotine liquid. So that was the futurist uh, metal cacophony pause for a, a bullshit advert. Whatever the fuck they're selling this week. Um, This podcast is supported by you. The listener via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Uh, please become a patron of the podcast if you can afford it. The price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee once a month. Please do that. That's what keeps the podcast going. That's what gives me a source of income. Um, I really appreciate anyone who does it. Also, share the podcast. Tell a friend about it. Write a review. Subscribe to it. All that crack. So... Moving on, we I left you with Italian futurism, 1913. What happened after that? A lot of bad shit, okay? A lot of fucking bad shit. The, the good bits of futurism, the incredible forward thinking uh, in terms of art, embracing science, embracing new, these modernist principles, they moved forward to go on to influence fucking Picasso, the Surrealists, Dada, they picked those bits. And then the shitty bits of futurism, the ideological bits, uh, very much went on to influence Mussolini, uh, Franco possibly, and the Nazis. And we all know how that fucking ended. One city that was badly bombed by the Nazis, of course, the north of England, right, was was bombed to shit because cities like Coventry and Birmingham in the north of England these were the industrial centres of the UK and you know Rosolo in 1913 was living in Rome which would have been industrialised but his contemporaries were living in Birmingham like, if you watch Peaky Blinders, you know, Peaky Blinders is set in 1913-1914, and it's set in Birmingham. And sometimes when I, when I watch Peaky Blinders, like, it's... One thing they really nail is the visual element of... It, it's when they do the wide shots, right? What, what makes Peaky, Peaky Blinders so lovely is, 
you've got these lads in, in tweed jackets and flat caps who look like they belong in a fucking farm. But they're living in these inner city laneways in Birmingham. And then when the camera pulls out, you see that this, you know, this, this little pub they walk out of, the camera pulls out and the pub is fucking dwarfed by this huge factory above it. And you look at it going, fuck me, this looks like a dystopia. You've these massive metal foundries in Birmingham in like 1913 with molten fucking metal firing up into the sky and the air thick with fucking smog and everyone walking around in, in paddy caps on, on horseback. And Peaky Blinders really nails that feeling, that feeling of people just being so small compared to this huge industrial boom and revolution that's happening in 1913. So, a lot of uh, the British fucking planes and tanks and all that shit were being made in Birmingham and Coventry because they were the industrial centres. So, Blitzkrieg, the Nazi technique of carpet bombing an area and then attempting to put tanks in there, which, as I said, is ideologically influenced by the determination of futurism, Blitzkrieg fucking blitzkrieged Birmingham. It made shit of Birmingham and blew it to shit. Birmingham, this massive industrial city, was cut to ribbons and left in rubble. And the weird thing about Britain is, like, it took fucking years for that to, to get fixed. Like, it's why, you know, I've been to Birmingham, you know, and I've I've been... Some of my BBC series, I, sh- I shot a lot of it around Birmingham. And it's mad when you go there, because you go down to, to the older fucking industrial areas, you know, and you're still left feeling overwhelmed by these giant bridges and all this stuff, and it's incredible to see. And to see something so large and to think that it's so old, like 100 years old, but Birmingham's also kind of ugly because the old city is gone and they had to kind of hastily build these disgusting modernist buildings that's the other irony actually you know is is like modernist architecture like the classic we'll say the Ballymun flats look shit that went up in the 60s and 70s um brutalism is the actual the name of the ar- architectural style this idea of perfect square fucking concrete blocks of tower blocks you know, put people in these boxes and they'll be grand. Pure modernistic thinking. You can trace that to uh, an architectural and artistic school called the Bauhaus. But again, everything goes back to fucking futurism. So it's ironic how futurism... You know, you've got Birmingham, this industrial city. Blitzkrieg destroys it, this ideology that can trace itself to futurism. And what grows in its place? You know, these fucking horrible modernist like the bullring in Birmingham is, is yucky I'm sorry Birmingham but it's 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 not nice it's 1960s very cheap looking architecture but it's ironic that futurism thinking destroys Birmingham and then what props up from it are these horrible modernist buildings that similarly can trace themselves to that ideology but that was just a bit of a segue there that I found interesting but so what am I doing in Birmingham? Why am I in Birmingham? Heavy metal comes from Birmingham. Alright? Heavy metal was born in fucking Birmingham. And I... 
it's not, I don't see it as any coincidence. I trace it directly back to what Rosolo was saying in that Futurist Manifesto. Now, metal, like m- most of ye, okay, some of you are going to be actual heavy metal fans, like myself, and th- the ones who aren't are at least aware of metal, you know? Not everyone likes it, but I think what we can all agree is metal is, is noise. Like, when I first started listening to metal as a teenager, and I'd have been listening to, like, Slipknot, which is, and Sepulchora, which is really heavy shit, but it's the classic. Your fucking da, your ma comes in, and they're, they're shocked, and they're going, what the fuck are you listening to? That's not music, that's noise. And in a sense, that's what metal is. It, like, it's metal and, and some, like, real hardcore techno, but metal in particular, it is fucking noise. Yes, there's melody in there. Now, it's undeniably beautiful. Of course it's beautiful. Metal is very beautiful. Otherwise, so many people wouldn't enjoy it. I find fucking great beauty in metal. And what I find is that metal is the... It's the <clears throat> it's the realisation of Rosolo's words. I shouldn't find metal beautiful, yet I do. It does something to me. It makes fucking sense. And it has to be... It it's I you know I'm from a fucking city I I'm I I live with cacophony I live with noise, so metal makes sense to me and it is the ultimate realization of what Rosolo was saying in his manifesto. But metal is is it's symphonic. Me- metal is is today's orchestral music because it, it's that big. It's. It's epic and it's orchestral and it's battle-like and it's unlike other forms of music. And I think metal, like it fulfills the musical role that huge symphonic orchestral pieces would have fulfilled fucking 200 years ago. Metal fulfills that role. It's an epic energy and feeling um, that kind of breaks the rules of other music. But... Birmingham is Birmingham is as important to metal as Detroit is to techno as New York is to hip hop. I think hip hop is the is the best analogy there because and I did my hip hop podcast last year like hip hop comes from New York and hip hop was from one small area in the Bronx and now it's the biggest music in the world. Metal's the same. You can trace metal to one little fucking area and band in Birmingham. So what I want to talk about is, firstly, the the mimetic mutation that caused the emergence of metal and the environment and how and why it happened and why all of that is relevant to the Futurist Manifesto. So, I'm not going to get into... So if you want to trace metal, you got to go to the blues. I'm not going to do that today because it's a separate podcast. The blues is too fucking big. It's too huge. And you can't have a conversation about the blues unless you're willing to have a conversation about West African music fucking 200 years ago. So I'm not going to get into the blues. Let's just say a thing called the blues happened. The blues turned into a thing called rock and roll in the 1950s. And... 
rock and roll then started to get a little bit heavy around the 60s uh particular in particularly how guitars were used all right again this is something i'm only going to tip upon because it's a fucking separate podcast but distortion guitar fucking distortion right which is heavy guitar sounds it was again that's a that's a kind of an accident if if you want to trace you know where where does the first guitar distortion come from uh the kinks a british band the guitar player dave davies dave davies he says straight up he stuck razor blades into his amplifier he doesn't know why he did it and he played a fucking guitar chord and a song called you really got me and that is the first example of guitar distortion and it was the first time people really were like fuck this noise that the guitar is making i shouldn't like this it sounds kind of ugly but yet it's beautiful and right there that's what rosola was talking about the redefinition of beauty as noise as something that shouldn't be beautiful but yet it is because the ears that are listening are ears that are accustomed to cacophony to violent cacophony of just existing in a city so from that you've obviously got Jimi Hendrix in the late 60s Jimi Hendrix really used the guitar distortion and then now I'm glossing over this shit like I said I'm I'm deliberately glossing over it because I can't give it the attention it deserves because that's another podcast so I'm going to go to a band called Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin didn't invent metal. Most people wouldn't say Led Zeppelin were the first metal band. But they were... If a genetic mutation occurs, Led Zeppelin were definitely one of the parents. Do you get me? Like, something, something, some freak gene is, is, is occurs and this creates a new branch. Well, in order for this gene to occur, two organisms organisms need to have sex. And one of those organisms was definitely Led Zeppelin. Um, I'll play a tiny little bit of Led Zeppelin now, just to contextualise how this, very shortly afterwards, turns into metal. So this is a song called uh, Black Dog. 1968, I believe, and... What what's what you're hearing here? This is essentially just the blues. It's because Led Zeppelin are started off as a fucking blues band. You can trace half of them to a group called the Yardbirds, which were sixties fucking R and B. Jimmy Page, the most important one in Led Zeppelin, I would say. Jimmy Page and John Bonham, the fucking drummer, but Jimmy Page in particular was a very adept blues guitarist uh, who just started to get just a little bit heavier and more distorted by the end of the 60s, okay? Uh, so what you're hearing here is, it's blues, but it's just blues, it's just that little bit louder, okay? 1968, Black Dog, Led Zeppelin. So, yeah, right, with that you can hear, um, you can hear the guitar distortion that's being used there. I mean, 
it's it's that part of the guitar that sounds like a fart. I don't know. I'm trying to. Des- it, it, I have to be careful in describing these things because I'm fucking playing instruments for years, so I'm trying to remember back what it was like to have no context because some people don't have any context for instrumentation. But basically, what you're hearing there, 1968, is that's just straight blues, but it's blues just it's it's post Hendrix blues that's done a little bit fucking heavier, but. It's still blues. It's still standard guitar tuning. Uh, Robert Plant singing like that's hasn't changed much from fucking Robert Johnson in the nineteen twenties. It's still blues, but it's blues with a new shirt on and a new set of pants. It's it's a louder blues. Nothing has fundamentally changed in the music. When we start to see the fundamental change. Uh, and the first ever example of what can be considered heavy metal, and what most people say, this is the birth of fucking heavy metal, this is the, the genetic mutation, comes out of Birmingham, 1970, Black Sabbath. And Black Sabbath are fucking incredible. I, I prefer Black Sabbath to Led Zeppelin. I will happily listen, like the first two or three albums of Black Sabbath, I will listen to, more than I listened to Led Zeppelin. One of the issues with Black Sabbath, uh, we all know Ozzy Osbourne, all right. Everyone knows who fucking Ozzy Osbourne is. We know him from reality TV in the two thousands. We know Sharon Osbourne. Most people, when they think of Ozzy Osbourne, it's either reality TV or mad stories about him on drugs or biting the head off a bat. And Ozzy's personality was so big. That it often overshadows the importance and contribution of his band, Black Sabbath. Who invented fucking heavy metal. Uh, it starts with Black Sabbath. Not, I wouldn't give the credit to... I know, that's, that, that's a bit unfair on Ozzy. I would give most credit to the guitar player, Tony Iommi, right? So here's the crucial thing. Black Sabbath come out of Birmingham. They're really kind of working class fucking Birmingham, right? In they they're all born around the nineteen forties, right? So by nineteen seventy, they're all about twenty. They grow up in a Birmingham whereby, like I said, Birmingham in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties is a city of rubble. They grow up in the burnt out rubble. Of a city that had been fucking bombed to bits. And not only the burnt out rubble. But. People who died. uh, The intense. Trauma of war. They were born into the trauma of post war Britain. In a city that had been bombed to bits. Where lives were lost. Where you can still smell the fucking smoke. Where. Even throughout the 40s and 50s, there were air raid sirens every second week because they'd found an unexploded bomb in a church. So they grew up with collapsing fucking industry. They grew up with the failure of industry. and they, But still, life continuing around them as an industrial city. So they grew up knowing nothing other than industry and incredible... Like, this is what it kind of departs from, from futurism. So, if you look at, Bar- like, 
the futurist viewed industry and industrial cities and machinery as the solution to all problems. The pure modernist fucking, this is incredible, this is amazing, this will solve everything. But Black Sabbath as children, growing up in the slums of Birmingham, surrounded by smoke and smog and burnt out fucking rubble buildings and the odd bit of industry still going, they grew up with the failure of industry. And moments like that, there, that's what makes something be postmodern. Do you get me? Because postmodernism is about the ironic rejection and failure of some of the ideals of modernism. So I do view metal music as it's postmodern in, in in the way that hip hop is, in the way that fucking disco is. It's it's it doesn't come from modernism. It's a response to it. And World War Two is like World War Two is a response to modernism. If you get the horn for fucking machinery and war so much that you try and have a lash at it and then you end up fucking losing millions and millions of people because of it that's the failure of modernism right there so black sabbath grew up with the failure of the futurist vision of this perfect industrial future of progress and instead grew up in its rubble but still you know are surrounded by this doom and fucking gloom the members of black sabbath themselves will will straight up they'll 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 talk about their childhoods as being intensely fucking unhappy they grew up in poverty surrounded by smoke and rubble and you know these people their grandparents would have been like the peaky blinders fucking generation they grew up with the the failure of like when Black Sabbath were teenagers the musical world that would have been around them it would have been late 60s fucking hippie bullshit you know which in England was very much a a middle middle class idealistic type of carry on and one of the parallels I see with metal as it came out of Birmingham and we'll say hip hop as it came out of New York the early hip hop artists they created hip-hop and rap as a response to disco having its head in the sand. The early hip-hop artists will say, if you look at disco music of the late 70s, like uh, Sheik, for example. No, nothing against Nile Rodgers is a fucking genius. The music of Sheik is incredible. But Sheik's songs are celebratory. You know, good times. These are some good times. This was the music that was being played in New York to the african-american communities in the late 70s these are some good times but the people of the bronx living in the bronx were living in rubble the bronx was burning you had donald trump and his dad setting everything off landlords were burning buildings just to fucking to rebuild them so the bronx was a real fucking slum in the late 70s and the early hip-hop artists straight up said disco music had its head in the sand disco music was funky it was fun to dance to nothing that disco music was doing said anything about the lives that we were living right and if you listen to interviews with fucking black sabbath black sabbath will say straight up we grew up in working class birmingham with rubble and factories and unexploded bombs and no opportunities and coupled with the fact as well that by the 1970s when black sabbath formed as a band 
the industrial dream of Britain was starting to disappear. Like the golden age of industry was starting to go. Like it was still 10 years before fucking Thatcher. But by the 70s, unions are falling apart. Uh, the north of England is... The future isn't as bright as it would have been previously. Do you know what I mean? So... The lads in Black Sabbath were quite unhappy. And they felt that... Hippie music and prog rock, progressive rock in particular... Was just this airy-fairy bullshit that wasn't speaking to them about their lives. And... Prague in particular, like, the lyrical content of a lot of prog rock, again, I do, like, some prog rock is fucking amazing, Pink Floyd, like, Jesus, it's a, it's unbelievable, it's class, I like Yes as well, I love Yes, um, ironically, Yes are a prog rock band, very, you know, virtuoso, nice to listen to, whatever, but very much lacking in, in soul and, and, and balls, you know, and a lot of prog rock lyrics were about fairies and kind of J.R.R. Tolkien type mythology. Very head in the clouds quite type stuff. Very intellectual music. Uh, a lot of prog rock musicians were kind of middle class fucking kids in London who'd been classically trained since they were children, you know. And this didn't speak to Ozzy Osbourne and his friends in Birmingham. But ironically, yes, the band Yes... Uh, Trevor Horn who was in Yes who would have gone to art college he ended up having a band called The Art of Noise in the 1980s which was directly named themselves after the Futurist Manifesto but what I'm getting at and why I'm mentioning prog rock and its lyrical themes is because one thing about early metal music British British metal music is before I start speaking about the sound because that's what I want to focus on the lyrical content if you listen to early Black Sabbath lyrics, it was almost like uh, this really dark, mean response to prog rock lyrics. So if prog rock lyrics were about Tolkien-esque goblins and fairies, well, metal was about demons and ghosts and fucking, you know, Black Sabbath. That's a fucking black mass where you fucking conjure up the devil. It was lyrically very doomy gloomy dark stuff and very ugly but beautifully ugly you know great beauty in in the ugliness so this is this is what i want to get to here's the genetic mutation this is the most important thing that happened in heavy metal music uh, and what created heavy metal it all comes down to the guitar player tony iomi tony iomi Grown up in Birmingham, he was kind of got to about 16, he was dossing off and his ma basically made him go and get a job in a factory, in a, in a metal foundry in Birmingham, which I just think is so fucking beautiful. Not only because this is how, this is the genetic mutation that causes heavy metal to be born and how it so perfectly reflects the Futurist Manifesto of 1913. So Tony Iommi's working in this metal foundry with these huge cacophonous clanks and bangs all around him and these explosions of fucking fire and molten fucking metal and he ends up using this machine and he wasn't too experienced with it to cut sheet metal now at this point he'd already been a guitar player so Tony Iommi he was playing blues he would have wanted to sound like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin so Tony Iommi at 16, 17, 
would have been a handy enough electric guitar player and wanted to play rhythm and blues. He was already playing in rhythm and blues bands and would have been playing his guitar and music and it would have sounded similar to Led Zeppelin, The Yardbirds. Okay? And this is late 60s. But when Tony Iommi is using this metal machine, he chops off fucking three of the fingers on his left hand, the tips of his fingers. So now he's like, fuck, I'm a guitar player. How the fuck am I supposed to play guitar if the tops of my left fingers are gone? Because you need to have your fucking left fingers if you'll be playing guitar. So Tony Iommi doesn't give up because he loves get, uh, electric guitar so much. And someone had told him, so, like when he was really upset about, fuck it, will I ever properly play guitar again? My tips of my fingers are gone. Someone told him about, uh, there's a great guitarist, a, a gypsy guitarist called Django Reinhardt. He ended up in a caravan fire and his hand was fused together anyway. So Django Reinhardt is one of the most legendary guitar players of all time who had a, a disfigured hand. And this inspired Tony Iommi. So what he did was... He got a washing up liquid bottle and melted down the plastic and made himself little plastic fingertips for his finger, right? And he whips out his guitar and he starts playing and he's doing his best but he's feeling kind of depressed and shitty that, like, without a doubt, even with his new plastic fucking prosthetic fingers that he's made himself, he can't play guitar the way he used to be able to play it. He just can't do it. So, he starts to figure, fuck this, I'm not giving up, right? And this is, here's where the fucking genetic mutation comes in. So, first off he goes for lighter strings on the guitar, because because he's missing his fingers, he can't put the force on the fretboard to make the chords, right? So he needs to change the guitar now to adjust to his new hand. So he gets lighter strings, but crucially, he tunes the guitar down. So the, the way guitar strings work is they're, they're tense, right? And in standard E tuning, or even in, in Spanish tuning that maybe slide guitar blues would be done in, the strings, like Jimmy Page's strings in Led Zeppelin at standard tuning, they're going to be tense. And in order to make those chords, you need a certain amount of resistance. So Tony Iommi, because he was missing fingers, could no longer do this. So he decides, if I tune the guitar down, if I tune it lower, what this does is it reduces tension on the strings. And now he's still able to play guitar, but his guitar is lower. And then all of a sudden he goes, well, my fucking guitar is lower. So I need to compensate for these things that I now must do. So he starts turning up the bass on his amp and this here is the genetic mutation that creates heavy metal music so Tony Iommi then he starts knocking around with Ozzy Osbourne and him and the lads form this fucking group called Black Sabbath and the name came from the name that after a horror film they'd saw but they'll all say that the sound that Tony Iommi had gotten on his guitar because of his fucking fingertips that were chopped off in a sheet metal factory in Birmingham. The sound of his guitar sounded so noisy and depressing and so full of doom. And 
Like, because the blues is about sadness. Like, the blues comes from, you know, the uh, incredibly oppressed conditions of fucking black people in Mississippi, in America. So the blues is always about sadness. But metal, which derives from the blues, it's got an act, it's got something else. It's it's more than sadness. It's it's a a depression. It's a menace. It's an anger. It's doom. It's war. It's a drone. That's what metal has. But Tony fucking Iommi's guitar, when he played it, had this. And when Tony Iommi was rehearsing, whatever fucking the other thing too is that because he was missing the fingertips. He had to make bar chords and power chords, which means you're losing melody. You can't make complex, sweet shapes. You have to do these kind of... What's the word for it? They're more kind of beefy. They're, they're lacking in sweetness and melody, and they're much more percussive. Do you know what I mean? So his his, his hand essentially is, is leading him towards this sound of doom. And Ozzy hears it, and Ozzy is just like, well, that's the most fucking depressing guitar sound I've ever heard. Now my lyrics need to also be this this depressing, and this terrifying, and this scary, this horror sound. And right there, fucking metal is born. That's how heavy metal is born. And I'm going to play for you now the first, what most people would consider the first ever heavy metal song. And this is... The 1970 album Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath and the song is called Black Sabbath which is great so here's Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath from the album Black Sabbath but just when you contrast it to Led Zeppelin a year previously it's do you know what it is too it's fucking simplicity Tony Iommi was f- if you listen to Jimmy Page when he was doing Led Zeppelin, it's very quick and it's very dexterous and there's a lot of notes. Tony Iommi couldn't go there, so he had to have an economy of notes. So you've got this doomy, depressing sound with less notes, but more concentration on the riff. And right here, here is the genetic mutation, and a new genre is born right here at this moment. So in, in a perfect world, I'd be playing you the full track uh, for all of this, but I can't, obviously, because it, it might get pulled down off fucking iTunes or whatever. But that's Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath from the album Black Sabbath. And what, I mean, that's just, I, I love that to be able to say that, like, that's the first metal song. Like, it's the first song off that album because it just, what a fucking intro. Like, it just... And what I find so, like, I I genuinely feel that the Black Sabbath's early music and that early heavy metal, 
it's it's a way of processing trauma it's it's children people kids who grew up after like a lot of them may have even remembered the blitz when they were children they might have have memories of being in the cot when Birmingham was being bombed from the fucking sky and that song sounds like I mean it opens with rain and the church bell this fucking English sound of the church bell and then this massive drone of fucking doom comes in and to me it sounds like Blitzkrieg that literally sounds like like an orchestral theatrical rendition of what it what it was like for the people of Birmingham in in the 40s and late 30s to be at home in in bed after spending the day working in the factory and then there's 500 fucking Luftwaffe bombers in the sky dropping bombs all around them and, and chaos and panic and rubble and fire and it sounds like that to me I view early British heavy metal like that because Birmingham has a tradition there's Judas Priest come out of Birmingham you've got fucking Napalm Death another really they're from the 80s but a really important metal band out of Birmingham too well don't know they're between Birmingham and Coventry two cities destroyed by fucking bombs but I I hear when I hear that it's I hear trauma being processed through orchestral anger that's what that is it's it's the it's the bombing of fucking Birmingham. And what's also ironic is... So that's 1970 and Black Sabbath are just... They didn't know they were making heavy metal. They just knew we have this fucking anger inside us. Tony Iommi's after fucking up his fingers. And we have this thing that we're doing and it just feels right. They didn't know they were inventing a new fucking genre. But you can clearly hear that is very different to Led Zeppelin two years beforehand it's totally different it's a whole new thing it's a new energy and when Black Sabbath then and this is what I find interesting and why I take it back to the war thing and the war trauma and why I find it so interesting why I hear that as as a processing of trauma from bombing is when Black Sabbath started to play in America about three years later they started to do small gigs in America it would have been at the very end stages of the Vietnam War and lyrically a lot of that first album like there's a song called War Pigs when Black Sabbath were playing America in like 72 it was the ending stage of the Vietnam War and at that point too in America people were very angry about Vietnam because of the draft there were riots and there was an interview with Black Sabbath where they were talking about their first gigs in America and they hadn't a clue like again they're just lads from Birmingham they start doing gigs and what they notice is the front rows of all their gigs it's just young men in wheelchairs and these men were lads who'd just come young men who'd just come back from fucking Vietnam who'd been blown to bits and what Black Sabbath noticed, in particular with the song War Pigs off that album, Black Sabbath, when they'd play that song, the soldiers' friends, the, the veterans' friends, these young veterans, would, would pick the lads up out of their wheelchairs and help them to stand. So the veterans 
who'd had their legs blown off a year previously would stand to the song War Pigs. And Ozzy and Tony Iommi were talking about it saying they didn't understand it but these Vietnam veterans somehow were processing their trauma of Vietnam through whatever the fuck uh, Black Sabbath's music was doing. Whatever it is, whatever symphonic doom, anger, aggression that metal can do, it was working for these veterans. And yes, it's coincidental, but again, I don't see these things as coincidence. Because like I say, I'm always searching for how does music emerge from an environment? And if 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 Black Sabbath's music emerges from the rubble of fucking war and industry, and it's a product of that, as a way of reprocessing trauma, which of course it is, because music is the expression of trying to understand your environment, of course it's going to ring true with young lads halfway across the world who'd just seen bombings. Of course it is, because it's tapping at the same parts of the fucking unconscious where that music is speaking to and I just think it's why I started off this podcast talking about the futurist uh, manifesto the art of noises that Black Sabbath song and heavy metal in general that's the full and ultimate realisation of what Luigi Rosolo was talking about that right there is like the futurists were trying their best to have their symphonies of queer instruments and machines and talking about we must redefine beauty to accommodate noise which in the 1920s people are going alright lads chill out you're playing a petrol engine up on stage this is yucky but Black Sabbath they, they realised that vision without being aware and this is what makes it class I doubt highly Black Sabbath were aware of the fucking Futurist Manifesto of 1913. The fucking prog rock musicians who had a bit more money and who would have gone to art school, maybe they had the advantage of knowing about artistic manifestos, but Ozzy fucking didn't. Neither did Tony Iommi. But yet, in the smoky, rubble, fucking industrial Birmingham bombed out city, they managed to find a sound that realises the goals and intentions of that manifesto 50 years later. And I just find that phenomenal. I find it fucking fascinating. So I'll wrap it up now because that's 90 minutes. It's That wasn't a history of metal podcast. That was It was a hot take about Italian futurism and trying to tie that bit specifically up with the birth of metal. And... Like I said, all I spoke about there really was the moment metal was born. I didn't talk about metal's parents. I didn't talk about metal's grandparents. That's a different podcast. I'm going to be probably returning to fucking futurism again at some stage because I have many fucking hot takes about other forms of music and how they relate to uh, futurism too. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um... Go listen to fucking Black Sabbath. If 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 you enjoy music, it, like I said, the reason that the reason I'm saying that is because for some reason, like Black Sabbath are respected amongst people who are really into their metal, 
but I just think the stories of Ozzy Osbourne and the reality TV and him being a drug-fueled mad bastard, I think that shit just overshadowed the fact that for the, the the first few Black Sabbath albums are incredible, really incredible. If you like heavy fucking rock music, they're amazing, and it invented heavy metal. They fucking invented a genre, so fair play to them. All right, Yart, I'll talk to you next week. I have a. Uh, a science-themed podcast next week. Fuck half. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.